Blessed are the meek is the topic for today, and that's found in verse 5. I will not take the time to read the entire context, which we've done just about every Sunday since we began the series on the greatest sermon ever preached. It begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced called the Beatitudes, but verse 5 is the one for our consideration today. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the third beatitude. I just want to remind you of some things we've said in different ways before. There is a progression, a logical one, for these eight essential virtues that comprise the beatitudes. They're very important, the order. One builds upon another. They're necessary steps to blessedness. They are not a menu of options. Please don't think of them that way. They characterize every true child of God. The first one implies the second. The second implies the third and so forth. They get progressively difficult from a human standpoint. First one is poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 3. That lays the foundation for all of the others, all the other seven. Humility is the law of the kingdom. We must see ourselves as God sees us before we can receive what God has for us. We must humble ourselves as little children in order to enter the kingdom of God. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The second one is, blessed are they that mourn. It speaks of those who in true poverty of spirit are led to true repentance, which is godly sorrow over sin. Again, on the surface, an oxymoron. Happy are they that mourn? That sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Only in the spiritual realm can that be true. And I reminded you last time I spoke two weeks ago, Jesus was preeminently the man of sorrows. Doesn't mean he never smiled. I know he did. I'm sure he did. And so he rejoiced in spirit, the Bible says. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame and he coveted that joy for his own, for his disciples. He said, these words have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. Can you imagine how profound and deep is the joy of Jesus? I want my joy to remain in you. I want your joy to be full. What a profound, what a surpassing joy that must be. And yet at the same time, and this is not a contradiction, though it may seem like it is, he wants us to enter into his passion he wants us to enter into His unutterable agony over sin and sinners. As He demonstrated to us in His earthly life, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, the way He knew what He was going to do, He wept in sympathy for those standing at the grave. He wept over the city of Jerusalem as He came up over the brow of the Mount of Olives, as He anticipated what was going to happen in just a few decades to that beautiful city. He told His disciples in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 21 and 25, 
Woe to them that laugh now, for they shall mourn and weep. But he went on to say, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Profound truth there. Let's make sure that we are not caught up in the cheap and hollow laughter of the world. The Bible says fools make a mock at sin. The world does that all the time. As far as the grosser sins, they excuse their own. You know, we're so messed up because of the fall, it affects our emotions. We laugh when we ought to cry. We cry when we ought to laugh and rejoice. It takes the Holy Spirit to straighten us out. So, to lay the stage for today, we humble ourselves before God. We're in true poverty of spirit, and, and then He graciously shows us our sin. Aren't you glad He does? Aren't you glad He warns us? Aren't you glad that pain is gain? Wouldn't it be bad if you could stick your finger in a flame and it didn't hurt, so you'd pull it out right away before you did real damage? We mourn over our sin because of the pain brought by the Holy Spirit. And we cry with the great apostle, at least I hope we do. If you've never known this sentiment, you need to check up to see if you're really born again. He cries in Romans 7, 24, as, as a mature Christian, not as a sinner under conviction. As a mature Christian, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he answers his own question, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's the first two Beatitudes. Here in the third, Jesus raises the bar even higher. Humanly speaking, it's more difficult to be meek, whatever that means, than to mourn. I think there's basically two reasons for that. I, I know I'm giving a lengthy introduction, but it's important because some things we think we know, but we don't. Two reasons that this is more difficult. The late pastor in London, Martin Lloyd-Jones, points out that up until now, in the first two Beatitudes, we're dealing with ourselves. These are attitudes within ourselves. Poverty of spirit, mourning over sin. But with the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, there's a change. We are concerning ourselves with other people. It's one thing to be honest with ourselves and confess that there's evil in us. But do we want to hear someone else condemn us? Not really. It's easy for me to get up here and in humility, or at least you think it's humility, talk about what a big sinner I am, but then you come up to me and say, yeah, you are one. And I bristle, and I get indignant, and probably a lot of us would. So that's why this is a difficult beatitude. And again, this beatitude, this third one, it seems like an oxymoron too. Just as saying happy are they that mourn just doesn't hardly compute 
unless we understand what it means spiritually, sold it. The idea of associating, uh, inheriting the earth, I mean, world conquest given to, of all people, the meek. Are you kidding me? That's counterintuitive. That goes against the grain of the world. The world thinks in terms of the rich and the powerful, the strong and the poised and the self-assured. And the more you play smash mouth and put, put somebody else down with good one-liners, the cooler you are in the eyes of the world. The more you assert yourself, the more likely you are to succeed. But Jesus said, the true believer, the one who's really a child of God, following him, stands out in stark contrast to all that. In fact, he's an enigma to the world. He just doesn't fit in. She doesn't fit in. As I said a couple of weeks ago, if I seem out of step with the world, maybe it's because I'm marching to a different beat. And we need to hear this in America, even in the professedly evangelical church. I think many of us have forgotten what meekness really is. As I mentioned in my prayer, it's election season again, less than three weeks away from the midterms. Record turnouts are expected. I'm glad for participation. Please don't misunderstand me. You ought to vote if you can. You ought to vote your convictions. But often, especially for people that feel like we've been deprived of our values being upheld in society, there's a wave of militancy that sweeps over us. And there's the idea, if not expressed, it's the way we feel, let's take back our country from the liberals. Let's all get together and consolidate our forces to resist the powerful enemy composed of the cancel culture and the Marxists and the woke crowd and the secularists and the statists and the elitists, and on and on we could go. But before you say amen, would you analyze what that really amounts to? It's easy to go back to what we call the dominion mandate, and many do, who call themselves Christians. In Genesis 1.28, where God said to Adam, fill the earth, subdue it, and then he went on to say, and have dominion over fish, fowl, and beast. And in our day, especially in the last three or four decades, the words of God have been twisted to mean, listen carefully, because you've got to be discerning Separate truth from falsehood, wheat from chaff here. God's words have been twisted to mean that all believers are to band together to advance the kingdom by not only winning souls, but by bringing all aspects of civil society under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Be careful with that. That's dominion theology. That's reconstructionism. That's trying to erect a utopia on earth. That's confusing, bringing every area of our life, bringing every thought into captivity to the knowledge of Jesus Christ with 
trying to impose God's civil laws on all society. I'm concerned about that. I see, it, I see a revival of this again. There's one big problem with it. Jesus, our Lord, came along and threw a monkey wrench in it. He comes along and says, blessed are the meek. Not blessed are those who get militant and vow to take back what is rightfully theirs and demand it. But blessed are those who wait upon God to fulfill His promise in His time that His children will indeed inherit the earth. I'm not getting any amens, but that's good preaching, Brother Bob. That's what the Bible says, what Jesus said. We are not called to possess the earth now, but when we come back with Him to this earth. Please don't forget that. All right, that won't cost you anything extra. That's just the lead up to the main event here. So it was Jesus who said, blessed are the meek. It must be true. What is meekness? Well, first of all, let's rule out what it's not, because this is kind of a fuzzy idea many people have. Contrary to thinking of many, meekness is not weakness. It's not cowardice. Some of the meekest Christians who have ever lived have shown great strength of character, even being willing to be martyred for their faith and laughing as they went to the stake to be burned. Meekness is power under control. The word in the Greek signifies that. It really was used to describe a a broken colt. That's a great picture of meekness. A young frisky colt that, I mean, if if he broke loose, he could cause a lot of damage, but because he's been broken, he restrains himself. That power is harnessed. That's meekness. Meekness is a spiritual virtue. It's not a matter of natural disposition. We can see this. We don't have to look any further than the Bible to see this. Think of David. David, by natural temperament, was anything but meek. He was a pretty impetuous, passionate, impulsive kind of guy. Look at what he would have done to Nabal unless his wife had calmed him down. That's the natural David. But when God's Spirit gets a hold of him, he becomes a meek and gentle shepherd of sheep and people, refuses to retaliate in his own strength. Same is true of Saul of Tarsus. I mean, headed to Damascus to really take it out on those Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem, have them stand trial. If he had anything to do with it, they'd be executed. But then he becomes the great apostle with humility and meekness, and he beseeches the Christians, I beseech uh, the Corinthians, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Something came over that man. Meekness, it's like poverty of spirit and brokenness over sin. It's part of that many faceted fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five, verses twenty-two and following. Meekness is not just the fruit of natural temperament. It's not just the product of a sanguine personality. You say, I'm naturally meek. No, you're not. 
Meekness is absolutely essential for salvation. Only the meek, beautified by God's salvation, will inherit the kingdom of God. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an understanding as we get into the gist of the passage. Meekness speaks not so much of what we do, but I think more of what we don't do, how we don't respond under certain provocations from others. So let's talk about that. I have to move quickly today. If you don't get all the verses, please uh, listen to the, uh, the, the YouTube archive version. You'll, you'll be able to pick that up. Number one, the meek do not usurp God's prerogatives. The meek do not usurp God's prerogatives. God reserves the right to do certain things, and only He can do them. And the meek man and woman recognizes this and gladly defers to God. I'll use some biblical illustrations of each of these traits. Some we'll look at scriptures for, some I'll just give you the reference. I hope you'll look them up later. Number one, it is God's place to bless. It is God's prerogative to bless. You turn to Genesis chapter 13, in verses 5 through 9, Abraham has left obediently the idolatrous Ur of the Chaldees in far-off Mesopotamia. He's gone headed for the land of Canaan, but he ends up sojourning in Egypt during a time of famine. Egypt is always a type of the world. And though he and Sarah were childless to this point, he had raised his orphaned nephew Lot. He'd raised him like his own son, and upon returning to Canaan, it became clear that they had too many flocks and herds between them to dwell together. So Abraham does the magnanimous, unselfish thing, as he's for the sake of time, we'll read just verse 9. Genesis 13, verse 9. He says, Abraham says to his nephew Lot, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if, if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And of course, Lot took all he could. Before long, he's not only pitching his tent towards Sodom, he's inside Sodom. And the sad part of it is Sodom gets inside him. Oh, be careful the way you raise your kids, what you expose them to. But the point is, Abraham could have insisted that it was his right to choose. I mean, after all, he'd raised Lot, had he not. He'd given him his start in life. He was the elder of the clan. But Abraham didn't insist on his rights. Abraham was secure in the fact that he had an inheritance from the Lord. He wasn't worried that his nephew, the compromiser that he was, would take advantage of him and rob him of God's promised blessing. Are you secure in what God has promised you? Or are you worried about what somebody might do to you? And can we trust God to bless us and others as He sees fit? You know, I was t talking to my wife about this maybe this morning. I, I never cease to marvel the fact God blesses some people that I don't think He should bless. I mean, they just don't qualify. God sends revival to some groups that just aren't, don't have it right. I don't understand that. You know, I don't have to. He's God. Maybe I have some blind spots too. Do you? 
if we're truly meek, we will keep His promise to us. We will believe it. And in His time, we will inherit the earth. He will not be a debtor to us. So again, just as Jesus told a discouraged John the Baptist languishing in prison, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Don't be offended in God when he blesses somebody you wouldn't bless. It's God's place to bless. Secondly, it's God's place to judge. Whereas Abraham illustrates blessing, I think Moses illustrates judgment. Again, for the sake of time, I'll just kind of briefly summarize here. In Exodus chapter 2, we find that Moses, the great man, by the way, you're going to hear a great message on Moses Wednesday night from from, uh, Gustavo. I pray you'll be here. But in Exodus chapter 2, we find Moses trying to help God out and acting in the flesh by killing an Egyptian and hiding his body in the sand. He thinks nobody sees it, but the next day finds out that it's known, and he figures Pharaoh knows, and he better get out, get out of Dodge. So he does. He goes to the backside of the desert of Midian for 40 years. That's a long time. But it took 40 years for Moses to unlearn the flesh. God's committed to doing that, folks. You may not be, I may not be, but God is committed to causing us to unlearn the flesh. And then we come a little later to Numbers chapter 12. Don't turn there, but within the context of his own family, his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, speaking against him. We read in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And at first glance, we scratch our heads. This man who struck the rock two times instead of speaking to it, this man who took the Ten Commandments and in anger threw them down, broke them, had to go back up the mountain and get another set. Meek? Are you kidding me? God said he was meek. Why? He demonstrated that meekness by leaving to God the judgment of Miriam and Aaron. And we see that further when God struck Miriam with leprosy for what she'd done in speaking against her brother. Moses didn't respond by saying, served you right. I told you not to mess with God's anointed, didn't I? No, he said, heal her now, O Lord. Heal her now. Oh, Moses could still get angry. And we need to be able to get angry. For the right reasons to the right degree and directed at the right people. Meekness is not weakness. God's Word says, be angry and sin not. Moses did not vent his anger against those who abused him. He meekly left all judgment to God, who is the chief justice of the universe. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Thirdly, what I just said leads to this, it is God's place to vindicate. Is God's place to vindicate. We see this illustrated in the life of David. Again, just jot the reference down. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, David is running in humiliation from his own son Absalom, who had rebelled against him, stolen the hearts of the people, stolen the throne from his dad. 
And David is encountered by a man of Belial named Shimei, who's really a, a bad dude. He thinks he's on a crusade. He thinks he's on a mounting opposition that's going to succeed, and so he thinks it's safe for him to do this. He curses at David as David is running from his son. He throws stones at David, and one of David's mighty men, loyal, valiant, says to David, let me just go take off this guy's head. He doesn't have any right to do that. Mark how David responded. He said, no, let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. Ah, the Holy Spirit had taught David meekness. And so we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, not yours. The way a lot of fundamentalists and evangelicals are acting today, they've changed that verse to vengeance is ours but it ain't. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's so necessary. Let God vindicate you when you are slandered, when you are misrepresented, when your good is evil spoken of, when the best things you do have the worst possible constructions placed on them. Did you know something? God can take care of your enemies and detractors a whole lot better than you can. Exodus 14, verse 14, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. You say, and somebody always will say this if I don't say it, so I'm going to beat you to the punch, okay? Does that mean we just become a doormat for people? <laughs> I knew it was coming. All right. No, it doesn't mean that. There are times when it is proper to assert our rights and defend ourselves, but be careful about the occasions outlined in God's Word. Jesus, before the high priest in John 18, verse 23, as he was brought to an illegal trial, he said this, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? Yes, the meek Savior about to go to the cross said that. The Apostle Paul asserted his rights as a Roman citizen when he and Silas were not only imprisoned in the Roman province of Philippi, but they were unjustly beaten as Roman citizens. He asserted his right as a Roman citizen. He said, they're not going to just send and let us depart without making a personal appearance and eating humble pie for what they did. There can be no doubt but that when Jesus gave this third beatitude and he gave that promise associated with it, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, what Old Testament passage was he referring to? Very definitely he was referring to Psalm 37 verse 11. Would you turn there? I want you to see this. Psalm 37. Some of you memorized Psalm 37. I listened to one of my grandsons saying two verses from it yesterday. I thought, praise the Lord. He's memorizing key passage of the Word of God. Notice Psalm 37, verse 9, first of all. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall what, class? Inher oh, that's real weak. 
Blessed or, or yeah, well, I'm not going to bless you yet. But anyway, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall what? Inherit the earth. Verse 11, but the meek shall what? Inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I don't think you have to have a seminary degree to put those two and two together. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Those that wait upon the Lord to vindicate and judge them are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. I must hasten. Number two, the meek do not chafe at God's providences. They don't chafe at the circumstances God permits. First of all, they recognize the cup when it's given to them by their Father. That's what our Savior did, didn't He? He talked about the cup. He drank of that cup in Gethsemane. He referred to it several times. He said to Peter, who had just whacked off the ear of a guy, put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18, verse 11. Don't you think that if God mixes the cup He gives, it'll be safe to drink it? So are we going to refuse to? Are we going to wallow in self-pity? Are we going to complain? Are we going to say, that's not fair? Now you expect that from your little kids, but I hope you've grown to the point you don't say that. That's not fair. Was it fair that Jesus had to die for your sins? Let's learn to deal firsthand with God. Let's recognize our Father's fingerprints on every dark package, as it were, that comes our way. Let's ask Him to teach us the lessons He would have us to learn through the difficult trials and the circumstances of life. And never, never doubt His love. Never forget that His hand is always on the thermostat. He will not suffer us to be tempted above that we are able. That's what the Bible says. We recognize the cup. Secondly, we rely on God to somehow bring good out of evil. Please jot this reference down. Genesis 50, verse 20. Many of you have very familiar with that verse. Give you the background. Joseph has died, or he's about to die. Jacob, has, his father has died. But Joseph had been mistreated by his jealous brothers. They had sold him into slavery in Egypt. Then in Egypt, in the household of Potiphar, he was lied about by his master's wife. He was thrown in prison to languish for a number of years. He was forgotten by men whom he had nobly served. And now with the death of his father, Jacob, those brothers who had mistreated him, their conscience still bothering them, they think, uh-oh, is he just biding his time? Is Joseph just biding his time now that our dad is dead and won't know what happens? Is he going to let us have it? And Joseph brings his brothers in, and in a very touching scene, he tells them, you don't have to worry. As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God meant it for good. We know that all things work together for 
good to them that love the Lord, to them who are the called according to His purpose. What do you think the all things means? You think that includes your faults and your sins and your weaknesses? Yes, it does. You know the safest place to be is in a position where you feel you have no rights. You don't have a sense of entitlement. You've surrendered your rights back to God and He gives them to you as privileges. I like what John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, is quoted as saying. This is great. You might want to remember this. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is down needs fear no fall. The meek person relies on God to somehow bring good out of evil. The meek refuse to seize any opportunity to get even. And that's what separates true Christianity from the world and from even other ancient religions. For the most part, ancient religions celebrated as a virtue inflicting evil on your enemy when you were given the opportunity. The better you could do it, the higher you ranked in that religion. But the religion of God and Christ is different. It sets things apart. David had two golden opportunities to get even with Saul, who was chasing him like a partridge on the mountains. If Saul had caught up with him, he would have killed him if it was in his power. But David had two opportunities to kill Saul, but he refused to do it. He said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And when Saul was eventually killed by the Philistines in battle, David did not rejoice, but he mourned his death. You say there's not grace in the Old Testament, it's just in the New. Well, what do you call that? Beloved, a skeptical world around us desperately needs to see that Christians are different. They need to see the extraordinary quality about us. They need to see that we do like Jesus commanded us, as we'll notice a little bit later in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 5. We do love our enemies. We do pray for them that despitefully use us. We return good for evil. We don't fall apart under sudden reversals or adverse circumstances. We don't kick and claw and scratch and fight to get to the top. Why is it that we're like that? Because we trust God and we submit to Him in all things. That's our security. I mentioned this several years ago when it happened, but I think it bears repetition. I was really intrigued by something that came across Fox News back in early 2000s. We don't even have TV hookup. I can't even get Fox News now. I got sick of them. But I heard about this fellow. His name was Masab Hassan Youssef. Maybe you remember that. He later was called and a book was, he wrote a book, Son of Hamas, the terrorist organization in Israel, Arab. He came to Christ in 1999. I was intrigued how it happened. I must summarize very quickly. His father was one of the founders of the terrorist organization Hamas. But Bev, some Canadian Christians, came over to Israel. I remember you looking for a tree. Some Canadian Christians came over to Israel. Somehow he got connected with them, had a Bible study with them, invited them into his own home. His, his dad didn't realize who they were. Christians in a terrorist home. 
And they read Matthew 5, 48, talked about it, where Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, love them that persecute you, pray for them that despitefully use you. And this is his response. He said, Islam had no answer for that. It broke my heart. He gave his heart to Christ. He had to flee from his own family. Went out to California. Wrote the book, Son of Hamas. We have no idea how loud we are witnessing when we suffer for Christ, when we love our enemies, when we do like Jesus said. Number three, the meek do not rebel at God's precepts. Could I ask you a very practical question? We've been going down pretty deep in some things this morning. How do you prepare for hearing the Word of God on Sunday morning? Did you give any thought to it before today? Can I remind you of what the Bible says in James 1 verse 21? I think it would be good to turn this into a prayer. The inspired inspired writer, it's not the Apostle James, but the inspired writer says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity, that's the King James word for overflowing, lay apart all filthiness, all overflowing of wickedness, and here it is, receive with meekness the engrafted or implanted word which is able to save your souls. You say, I have a hard time staying awake on Sunday morning. Well, do do you pray on Saturday night that God will help you to receive with meekness the implanted word? Jesus said in Luke 8, verse 18, Take heed therefore how ye hear. It's vitally important how you hear the Word of God. Not because I'm speaking it, but because it's God's Word. You're going to give account for how you hear. Make sure you are prepared in heart to receive the Word with meekness. How do the meek demonstrate that? Very quickly, and I'm over, we're going to have a fast ride here. You see it, the outline on the screens, you see the verses associated with it. First of all, the meek presume God's Word to be always right. You've heard me say it before, not all bias is bad. David had a good bias, and he said in Psalm 119, verse 128, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. When I approach the Word of God, God doesn't have to prove Himself to me. I don't have to weigh it to see if it measures up with what Dr. Bottlestopper has said. It is authoritative truth. God's Word is always right, no matter what the fads and conventional wisdom dictate. We often say, and there even songs have been made, God settled it, or God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm sorry, scratch out that, I believe it. Whether you believe it or not, it settles it. God's Word is always right. The meek person presumes it to be right. The meek person has a teachable spirit. Please jot this reference down. Psalm 25, verse 9. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. The meek man or woman is just like a sponge. They don't think they know it all already. I was in school at a Bible college, and there were some people that came, and I don't know why they came. Because they challenged the professor about everything. They, 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 <laughs> they should have been up there teaching instead of him, is their attitude. The meek don't think they already know it all. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. 
The meek soul will have a teachable spirit. Some people, you, you can't tell them anything. There's a dear lady in the Cayman Islands. I love her to death. She, she would help us in great ways, but I would never tell her anything because before I could get it out of my mouth, she would say, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. So I just quit telling her. Thirdly, the meek have a peaceable and gentle spirit. James, the same writer who enjoined us to receive with meekness the implanted word, concludes in James 1 verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Several things I could say there. But the Bible links peaceableness with gentleness in this matter of being meek. David said in Psalm 18, verse 35, I love this verse, he says to God, thy gentleness hath made me great. Why was David gentle? Why did he learn true meekness? I tell you what, because he wanted to become like the God who had been gentle toward him. Finally, the meek person trembles at God's word. I do want you to see this. Would you take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 66, that's the last chapter of the book. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look. This is the one he will have regard to. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Listen, beloved. Receiving the, the word with meekness will cause us to be like Noah, who was moved with fear and prepared a house, an ark for the saving of his household. We will be moved with fear when we hear from God the doom that awaits the ungodly. It bothers me when I see the response of the average Christian in the average independent Baptist church these days. There may be an intent listening, there may be reverent attention, but there's anything but trembling at the Word of God. And yet in the day of King Josiah, when the law of God was discovered in the temple, and they realized that they'd neglect the commands of the Bible, that the king set aside a time of humiliation and fasting, saying, great is the anger and fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. But what do we see happening in America? We come to church, we come to hear the Word, we think, but we want to feel good about ourselves when we come to church. We don't want anybody telling us, as I'm telling you today, that we are dancing on a sinking Titanic. And we better tremble at the judgments pronounced in the Bible for which we are ripe. 1 Peter 4, 17, the time has come indeed, I may add, that judgment must begin at the house of God. Are we trembling at the word? Well, the promise associated, and I must hasten with this, I'm done. promise associated with this great beatitude, the third one is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word inherit there in the Greek uh, is related to a verb that means to receive an allotment. To receive an allotment. 
Let me say what I've said in a previous message, I think the first one in this series. There is a sense in which we inherit the earth now. Yes, we are reigning in life now. Like Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, or 5, verse 17, we reign in life by one Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which we already inherit the earth, but let's be very careful. What is that sense? Well, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are content. We believe what Psalm 37, 11 says, that even now we delight ourselves in the abundance of peace. Even now we are triumphing in Christ in all things. Even now we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And as Paul told the Corinthians, he said, all things are yours. I like that. All things are yours right now. But Jesus said this in a future sense. They shall inherit the earth. The primary sense is future. One day, God's children will exclusively inherit God's planet. <clears throat> One day, every child of God is going to receive an allotment in God's manifest kingdom on earth. I love the way the Lord told Daniel that in chapter 12, verse 13 of the prophecy of Daniel. The end of the book, he says, Go thy way, Daniel, till the end, for thou shalt rest, and in thy lot shall stand at the end of the days. In thy lot. Does God have an allotment for you? If you're saved, yes. God is not done with this earth. He hasn't abandoned it. One day the wicked and the corrupt who seem to be getting away with murder and running things now, and they're calling the shots, they're going to be forced to give it up. The community of the righteous will possess it. We will rule and reign with earth's rightful king, Jesus Christ. And until then, let's not try to seize the reins. We're the meek. We can afford to wait just like Jesus. When he was offered the kingdoms of this world by Satan in the wilderness, he resisted the temptation. But a lot of Christians are not resisting the temptation. They want the kingdom now. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, please help us to learn from the one who testified of himself, I am meek and lowly of heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. Help us to be like him. Help us not to be like the world. Please teach us this morning, as your children, what true meekness really is. And then would you produce that meekness in us? May we be willing, as we enter into deeper persecution for our faith, discrimination, mistreatment, please enable us to be willing to be misunderstood and vilified in the short term, knowing that we have a far greater inheritance laid up for us someday. In Jesus' name, amen.